Monday, August 17th. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier here with my co-hosts, Alyssa Walker and Hayes Davenport. How are you guys doing? Welcome back, Alyssa. Welcome back, Alyssa. Thank you. Holy smokes. So good to have you back. It is holy smokes. The moment I got back. Yeah, the <laughs> city is finally, how I was finally greeted. on fire. <laughs> It Came took over a little... that hill and it was like, yep. whoa, welcome. Did home. you did you kind of drive through it on the way back? Yeah. So we came back on the 15. So you could see the what? Pyrocumulonimbus cloud. Yeah. All mm-hmm. puffy, all puffy and pink. Um, rising up above Azusa. So that was pretty it I think they were already getting a good handle on it, but it looked it looked bad. It looked like it was exploding, but it was, I think they were already starting to, it wasn't really threatening any homes or anything. So the, the Azusa fire, that was the Ranch 2 fire. Yeah. When did it become Ranch 2? I feel like that was added <laughs> They on. found when, another Ranch fire. <laughs> was there, two? There, was, there was a, a There's ranch always fire. a Ranch fire. Every there's, year there's yeah, a Ranch I was fire. Say, there's a Ranch These fire. These need to be, yeah, we need to change it to be like tornado. I mean, uh, to storm names like you can't. Yeah. yeah, like you can't use the same name. I, I appreciated that they called it the Ranch Two Fire because there was a big ranch fire not that long. I think it was in 2018. Um, so Ranch Two Fire, that's the one in Azusa, like you're talking about, um, and it is like 2,500 acres. They're saying it's blowing away from residences in the area, which is good. Uh, and as far as the time of this recording, they do think it is arson. Azusa PD like put out a, like basically like an all points bulletin for someone, uh, that was, uh, a homeless resident of one of the encampments in the area. So no idea what's going on with that, but then this guy must immediately be captured. I mean, when they say arson, that includes like trying to heat food. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a person who was like living in the riverbed uh with uh with his partner and then um they don't know where he is. They don't even I, frankly, they don't even know if he's still alive at this point in mm. time. Um but they they said that they're looking for him and the the police said that he's he's suspected to be violent. So, I mean, it's it's one of these things where as soon as somebody unhoused is uh, related to something like this, there's a dramatic escalation, I think, in the language that gets used. The much bigger fire is the lake fire, which uh, I don't... Can you guys see this from your house, the the giant clouds from the lake fire? My windows I, are not really facing... It's, it's gross. The air looks awful, yeah. but I, I can't really face that. I have a direct direction. line to the Ranch 2 fire. Ranch squared... Does look ranch like ranch squared. God, I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys can see it out of my window. That's not going to work. But uh, there's nope. a giant. It, it's just like a giant cloud head. It looks like uh, a storm cloud. It, but it's just been sitting in one location for days and days. This is in the Angeles National Forest. We talked about. Uh, somewhat recently because during one of our recent very bad fire seasons, which is now an every year sort of thing, uh, Donald Trump said that he wanted to start having people do commercial logging in the Angeles National Forest. I'm sure that we'll hear something about that again. Currently, uh, it is 18,000 
thousand acres, second largest active fire in the entire state. Only 12% contained as of Sunday morning. Uh, and it has grown dramatically in the past couple days, particularly on Saturday when the, the heat wave that we've been going through uh, led to a ton of lightning activity in the area. There were more than 100 lightning strikes uh, and the, the heat has made it very difficult to combat this particular fire. So that, I mean, like <laughs> when we talk about like fire risk, you know, like these can be set off by a cigarette, like a sterno, stuff like that. Like a car. How about a hundred lightning strikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> will, will that do it? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there was all this talk about dry lightning this time. Like I don't yeah. I have never seen so many tweets about dry lightning. Sounds Awesome. Sounds so cool. So dangerous. (laughs) So we have, I mean, uh, yeah, let's, I mean, we're, we're all in unair conditioned rooms so that we can record this podcast. The heat wave is Mm -hmm. not great. It's like, it's what, 100 degrees and 60% humidity, something like that this week. Don't forget the air is uh, very dangerous to breathe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, what, what, what? This is the worst air in how long? I mean, like, well, this a very was the worst. Uh, I think it was either Saturday or parts of Friday. The ozone, which is not really mm-hmm. what you think about. I think a lot of people look at maybe air quality apps, and it the number looks okay, and you're like, oh, I'm yeah. fine, because um, that's usually reading particulate matter. But the ozone was really bad. Um, and it was a 10 year record. So it was, it hasn't mm. been this bad for 10 years. Uh, just the, the one hour readings is what they call it. And the ozone thing is, is kind of like the worst we, we can do with our emissions as far as like, uh, we, we could make a substantial difference in that if we say, um, got people not to drive or made, you know, in the same way we do rolling blackouts, we could do rolling drive outs or rolling <laughs> emissions outs or something like that, we could actually improve that pretty quickly. Um, but that compounded with the fire in the air and mm-hmm. the heat. I mean, everything it's, it's, it's toasty and it's crackly and it's, it's gross. It's a, it's a pretty bad, bad day. And then everybody, you know, gets to breathe that on top of um, being at risk for a respiratory pandemic so yeah. that's great that's been it's been fantastic great days we're having so much fun uh the, the ozone um pollution that uh, that we are experiencing at such high levels right now uh does come from like Alyssa's saying comes from cars comes from uh primarily stationary sources such as you uh, utility generating plants um and uh this is the one where they they it's very closely associated with heat waves in cities. So mm-hmm. things things like this. And it's uh, the the time frame that you're talking about, Alyssa, is also related to another uh, story that we had this week, which is that the uh, the the heat wave is being predicted. There was an LA Times story about this being predicted to be the worst one since the uh, historic 2006 heat wave here in Los Angeles County. Um, so this this heat is really punishing. Uh, it, it is expected to last 
through really throughout the week to come and mm-hmm. reach uh, a sustained intensity that we haven't seen here um, in nearly 15 years. That that 2006 uh, heat wave is when the region as a whole set its all-time highest temperature, 119 degrees in Woodland Hills. Uh, and there were hundreds of deaths. Uh, the official uh, death toll was 150 people thereabouts died due to heat-related causes. Uh, but several years later, there was a study that came out that actually found that it was probably closer to 400 people who lost their lives during this 2006 heat wave. So um, it's very dangerous, a very dangerous environment, of course. Uh, then you layer onto that the the coronavirus pandemic, like Alyssa said, and it's um, it's it's got the... In the specific the, circumstance of that, which is indoor air conditioning, like malls and libraries, especially places where people go to cool down are all closed. And the number of places that are open, the number of cooling centers at the city level anyway, totals about a hundred spots. Yeah. Uh, And at some of those, you can't even, you can't stay for a really, even staying in a place like that for an hour could like save your life. Um, But the one, I guess, lucky-ish aspect of this is that the nights, the lows are not super abnormal. Yeah, it's not It's not like we're having really high temperatures during the day or at night, but I think the fact this is going to last basically a week is going to be very difficult towards the end of the week for a lot of people, especially if, I mean, like you said, like we have, you have to stay home, you have to crank your air conditioner, Um, you really don't have enough, many other options, you know, pools are closed, splash pads are closed. The beaches are open. People are going to the beaches. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you can't get to a place like that, it's, you're really kind of screwed. Maybe you drive around in your car. We've already been having stories too about, uh, because people are staying home, not going to, to offices or things like that, uh, have been mostly indoors at their own residence throughout the, uh, summer that people are getting hit with these enormous utility bills that they can't really afford. And there's mm-hmm. there's growing concern about that. I do think, I mean, at least I, I, I fear that the calculation for most people will be if you have oppressive heat and there's nothing that you can do about it, you're, I think you're naturally going to take more risks with COVID, potentially contracting yeah. COVID, um, as opposed to staying in potentially life-threatening heat. Um, so I, I think that's something that we need to watch uh, as as this week progresses. We did, but don't worry. The state has a, a solution for your high energy bills, which is rolling blackouts. Yeah, we're not supposed to call them that, though, right? Why don't they have? Well, don't they have all sorts of terms where they it doesn't actually say that. I love that term. <laughs> Load shedding is that a better? That's a better term. I like. I like rolling. I, I it's I very do. evocative. I want. <laughs> I want to. I want to please the utilities so much. So I want to make sure. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. What uh, rolling blackouts. This is something that the state of California is not new to, but it is is also something that hasn't happened here uh since i mean like the the worst part of 
uh, the early 2000s when mm-hmm. uh, the state was famously, not, not really famously at the time, but famously after the fact, subject to a lot of really gross and shady corporate profiteering by Enron, who uh, basically, what, like shorted... I don't know. They basically short-circuited the market for electricity yes. in the state of California, leading eventually to uh, Governor Gray Davis's recall and replacement with the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, so for the first time in about 20 years, we have uh, had this past weekend a what's called a stage three emergency where they're, they basically said, we have no more power. We need to start sequentially cutting power to different people throughout the state. Um, Alyssa, do you want to talk about what the the stage three emergency actually means? It sounds so exciting, doesn't it? Um, It does. So we, you have to think about, and this was us coming home from our trip too. So the entire Western part of the United States, you know, we're Mm -hmm. basically like relying on each other to help out (laughs) and not put so much strain on the grid if, you know, so we don't have this kind of emergency. But where we drove through, it was like 100 degrees as soon as we entered that zone all the way back to L.A. and then all the way up and down the coast. I mean, San Francisco had one of its hottest nights in a really Mm -hmm. long time. I mean, you had all the way up, up and down the coast. It was like, you know, red and brown and black and purple or whatever it is on those <laughs> those maps. So we really don't have any more power. It's not like we can get it. It's not like we have the ability to to throw on, you know, a switch and all of a sudden get more. We're out. So um, what they'll have to do is issue these emergencies, a stage, a stage two and stage three emergency. So on the on Friday, we went into stage two emergency and it was like power outages possible. And then stage three, which is really bad, which is like basically like you were going, we're going to have to start cutting power to certain parts of the state, um, went into effect at 6.36 p.m. But then by 7.51 p.m., they said that we were all good. And by 8.54 p.m., they said everything was back to normal. So who knows what... (laughs) It was a very short moment, but it was very scary because especially at nighttime, you know, as people are trying to go to sleep and really cool down, that's when you, like you said, like if the temperature isn't lowered enough in your house and you don't have an air conditioner, that's when, you know, the health risks really start to kick Mm -hmm. in. So we skirted disaster. I don't know. Did we? We eat all the ice cream in the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it goes out in the middle of the night, are you really going to eat in the middle of the night? I mean, that. You know, the so the the emergency. I also thought it was funny that they wouldn't say where the blackouts were happening because of like roving marauders. I guess <laughs> sure. like drive to, to that get city and just ransack else. it. And it's important to know that DWP is not part of this. Uh, yeah, when it gets issued, Ooh, for right. most part, we were all fine. If you're a DWP. Um, were you guys fine? You had no if, issues. It, Some people yeah, had blackouts, I mean, though. We're we're all all three of us are in the city of LA, but um, that's like forty percent of the households in in LA County. So a lot, potentially a lot of other households outside of the city were impacted. Uh, there were um, definitely rolling blackouts in cities like uh, Long Beach and in the San Gabriel Valley, where it gets very hot. Um, the 
the emergency designation is actually put out by the independent system operator, the, the CAISO, which is also the organization that sends you flex alerts, the, the alerts that say like it's, you know, so con- conserve energy now, don't use major appliances before 10 p.m., uh, that, that kind of thing. So um, they are basically a, a corporation that runs the, the power load for a bunch of different mostly private but not entirely private uh, utilities throughout the state. LEDWP, not one of them, um, but SoCal Edison is one, PG&E is one, uh, San Diego Gas and Electric is uh, also one. Those are the three big ones in the state. So they... Imagine, as, like, as bad as things are here, yeah. we could have PG&E providing our electricity. <laughs> instead of, or SoCal Edison, frankly. Instead of... That's true. SoCal Edison customers did have disruptions right at that night mm-hmm. uh, or an hour or so i'm just looking at the thing like that so they yeah that's true we are we we somehow have emerged victorious LADWP <laughs> it has its problems being graded by the fbi <laughs> problems overcharging all of their customers <laughs> right. by thousands of dollars but, but keep that power on for you yeah i mean they do it by by doing like coal firing or natural yep. gas firing plant. Right. right. Yeah. So it's like I said, like we do have more, we do have more, you know, I was saying once we're out of power, we're out of power, but we do have our wonderful natural gas ah. backups. The, the, <laughs> the ISO has tons of plant or tons of problems as well. Uh, but it is actually pretty cool. Like Alyssa was saying, they're able to uh, they're able to to see and manage at a very fine grained level exactly what the the actual and forecasted power needs are throughout most of the state. So they're able to do like the the stage three emergency for whatever forty minutes or it, it is whatever it is. Um, but that so just by virtue of doing that, what they're actually saying is the entire state's uh, the entire state's grid has no more capacity to actually extend power. So that's why they start doing those chunk uh, chunks of rolling blackout throughout the state and typically for an hour at a time. And yeah, there was at one point you can see just because we're being ner- nerds right now, you can go to the ISO website and you can see how much of the grid is being powered by renewable sources. And when we were in that super emergency time, you did see like the needle go way over to natural gas. And it was literally like where, you know, our state was being run again by fossil fuels. But then on times where it's the peak is lower, you go back to renewables and you have that little, you're showing it I right have this, <laughs> yeah, I have this cool like, app. They have, wow. a, they have an app. It's awesome. That looks uh, like a coronavirus case uh, wave that you've got is, going there. It's, it's called <laughs> ISO Today. And it's actually good. I, d- I just downloaded it yesterday because I didn't get the, the flex alert. So. so like right now during the day on Sunday, as we're recording this, it's now 33% renewables, which is great should be more but it was it was funny to see we really don't have this ability to you know when when we have an emergency we have to tap into our um fossil fuels again which is a bummer i was reading about the, the when they they use the most energy during the day and like so the three o'clock to six p.m hour is like usually peak that's when everyone has their AC going pretty much. Yeah. But then I guess as you are transitioning out of the hottest part of the day, 
And so fewer people are using AC. You also have less power at your disposal because it's getting dark. Right. And solar the, is not providing as much. Yes. And that's what happens. You can see mm-hmm. that the emergency kind of correlates with, you know, the sun going, the sun starting to go down or being, you know, getting ready for that to happen. So, yeah, I mean, we are in, this is the nightmare, right? This is what we, this is what we didn't think the pandemic would get to this point. We've seen weather occurrences happening across the country now, you know, what happened in Iowa, there's been other kinds of storms that have um, knocked out power to entire communities, to entire counties, um, our grid is not ready for climate change and it's not ready for everyone to be home in a pandemic and climate change on top of it. So we are facing, and then fires, of course, now on top. And we were supposed to have, <laughs> we were increased in incidents for an earthquake this week, but I guess we're okay with that. But it's that's not going to happen. That's too many ands. That's too many. <laughs> but even did like, I miss? Even really just depressing. you saying... <laughs> Even just you saying this is the nightmare, I feel like is tempting fate. Where in a week we'll be like, one so, so this is actually the the nightmare. This that was just a nightmare. <laughs> but this is we we are we we certainly could couldn't have planned our grid to have everyone at home and not in these uh, more efficient, say, office towers or, or these buildings that we built for this very reason, where a lot of people could go during the day and not crank their you know, 30 year old AC units or their, you know, poor insulated homes, poorly insulated homes. Um, and we are going to have, and it's not just, you know, us, it's like other cities are going through this too at other parts of the country. And we are going to see this catastrophic failure of how do you allocate your energy resources mm-hmm. that are designed for people to be at work all day to be at home. And you're right about your power bills going up really, you know, uh, kind of skyrocketing because you're paying for this highly inefficient system to keep you cool at home. Um, We should be getting money back somehow from our employers or somehow they should reallocate that money that they're not spending to cool their office buildings. You know, there's got to be something. I'm curious too, because there were a bunch of stories at the beginning of COVID, right? When we had, when we actually had stay-at-home orders throughout the state of California, there were a bunch of stories that uh, throughout the spring, utility systems were using a lot less power because people were at home. P- individuals were paying more because they didn't used to run their AC all day or whatever the case might be. Um, but the big office buildings, most of those were just laying dormant. I'm curious if that has remained the case, though, as I think the orders have become a little bit more lenient. Um, You know, you can't just leave those giant office buildings baking in the sun all day. So I feel like they're probably close to back to just running normal operations, even though they might have just a fraction of how there's no people there. They're still running Mm -hmm. their AC units, probably. Yeah, we'll see. Let's uh, let's get into talking about coronavirus. Hayes, what's happening this week? Yeah, so this for once is a... I mean, this is what passes for good news now, but uh, fewer, not few, but fewer people are in the hospital with coronavirus. Feels like just yesterday that we had 2,000 people and climbing yeah. uh, hospitalized on any given day. A peak... For the uh, for the pandemic, 
But the scaling back of the reopening, I mean, everything is like right on schedule, right? Yeah. We reopened restaurants, then we reopened bars. The pandemic exploded. Uh, hospitalizations grew by a huge amount, but deaths had not increased significantly. Then deaths followed hospitalizations, and we saw a huge increase there. Now we do still see pretty consistently high daily deaths, but hospitalizations are dropping, which usually happens first before deaths going back down. So we have managed to turn back the clock to something like uh, late May, early June. Mm -hmm. Remember when everything was great. Yep. Like, you know how we've been saying, like, if we could only just get back to late May, early June. But that's where we are now. There are uh, uh, the new numbers just came in from LA Public Health. 1,357 people in the hospital uh, right now suspected to have coronavirus. That's a drop of about 35 from yesterday. Um, and it has continued to fall at a pretty rapid uh, pace. Not a lot of that is because of the deaths, unfortunately. Um, but there are also more discharges than people being admitted, uh, which is positive news. Also this week, there was kind of like the big story summarizing the uh, the aggressive reopening against the original plan, both in Los Angeles and at the state level. Uh, and the LA Times, it was put together by a team of five great right. reporters, health reporters, data reporters. Uh, and they just basically did the whole rundown on what happened. Uh, and it puts the blame squarely on, uh, I would say, or not squarely, it distributes it pretty evenly between Gavin Newsom, uh, the county, specifically Catherine Barger, who has been, who has been heading up this process for Lord knows what reason, uh, and uh, Mayor Garcetti. Uh, and it also happens to be pretty similar to what this podcast has been saying for two and a half months, uh, that the reopening, uh, caused tremendous, like widespread death and disease. Yep. Basically. Uh, but also is a good summary of the rhetoric at each point along the way and how bewildering it was how much it blamed residents at every turn, whether it was for the protests or for spending time at like family gatherings when restaurants were open for indoor dining. Um, Bill Plachke, the LA Times columnist, also uh, the sports columnist also wrote a column this week about how he had COVID and he thinks he got it at an outdoor restaurant. Yeah, where you know they were outside, but obviously no one's wearing masks. You're eating food. It's kind of. And, uh, have you guys? See, have you guys been in? So I have not done an alfresco still. Of man. course not. But uh, have you guys like seen them happening? I, I texted you guys. I've said, been on the same side of the street as one. Okay. I went to the parking garage. Remember, so I can talk about that. Oh, that's right. Which was, that was, I feel that, like yeah. incredibly safe and incredibly. Uh, non-intrusive to the sidewalk environment, but yeah, talk about not, um, provide some context for people who don't know about when you ate in a parking. So garage. the Glendale Galleria is using the bottom floor, not a subterranean floor. I think a lot of people were really worried that you were like in the bowels of the Glendale Galleria. It is a ground level 
um, parking structure and they are using the bottom floor, not even like 12, 12 car spaces basically mm-hmm. um, for dining. Cause they don't have, they can't open their food court cause it's inside of the building. So uh, some of the restaurants are offering uh, you can eat, uh, you can grab it from like these kiosks that they've set up outside the mall. And then you just walk across the little street there and then you can eat inside the parking garage. And I actually just thought it was, it was really great because they didn't have to put up any shade structures. They didn't really have, they just brought the tables out from the food court. Um, they're very far apart, like much farther apart than you could put them apart yep. on any parking space or a sidewalk space. Um, and it was the one place I've like seen that I was like, yeah, it actually would be fine to eat here because there is, you have a lot of room and they are taking all the precautions. I saw someone come out and clean every single table and chair while I was sitting there having my meal. And you can get to go beer from Masi's, um, from the kebab place there. Um, they will bring you a little beer in a to go cup. So a beer garden at the Glendale Galleria. Yeah. I, who was it that said, Alyssa, I, I saw someone said like, Alyssa Walker reviewing a meal of like a, basically a restaurant review in a, on the first floor of a parking garage. I did not expect it to be as positive <laughs> as this. You just, you can't pin her down when you think she's going to zig. But it, but if people are demanding that we take parking spots away from cars, how could you be mad at this? This is the quintessential yeah. uh, ideal use case of mm-hmm. uh, what you were asking for. So don't shame them just because it's in a garage. It was fine. I So I had an experience where I went to Red Lion in uh, Silver Lake to pick up a meal because I was tired of paying for delivery. Um, and so I went in there. They have their beer garden open. Great space if you've never been in the there. back, the back part of it, right? Like the yeah, in the back, existing, uh, yeah, semi semi enclosed, but it's open air. It is yeah, it's al pretty fresco. tented, yeah. Uh, but I personally, and I had this experience also when I, I went to to Griffith Park when I was trying to to catch up with some friends. But I I, I was surprised going in there it felt like being in just a totally different world where people were having a completely different experience of the last almost six months of this than, than I am having currently. I, I went in there, I was waiting to, to pick up my food. You know, they're, they're playing sports, whatever, whatever sport is currently ongoing. I guess basketball in the bubble, et cetera, is, is, is happening now. Um, and then you just have like, Groups of people sitting together, none of them wearing masks because um, there's food and there's beer to drink, etc. There's there's not really, I think, a reasonable expectation that these people would be wearing masks. They're not particularly spread out. If they're, I don't even know, sitting at a table, you have six or seven people. If they all live together, mm. that's kind of impressive. If they don't, it just seems dangerous uh, and, and needlessly so. And do they close early? Do they, because no, do, they can stay up until 2 a.m.? I think so. Because I think that's a thing that I also didn't really realize about bars, right? So like, you're going to get drunk if you're there past 
11. I don't know. Where, why else would you be there? It's a, and then what happens? It's a bar. Like, it's a yeah, bar. I mean, this, yeah, this it is, is kind operating of, functionally as a bar. This yeah. is kind of this is kind of what we have talked about in the past. Like the 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 difference between what the state and more saliently what the county and city have said is the case, which is that bars can't open. But then the reality that when you're doing al fresco. Mm-hmm. And you're like giving a de facto liquor license to even, I mean, Redline, of course, has had one, but to places that haven't had one, what you're saying is y- if you serve any food, you're allowed to open, even if you're, like Alyssa said, serving de facto as a bar. And so that's peculiar. It's a weird choice. Yeah. I don't really blame people for doing it. I certainly don't mm-hmm. feel comfortable, so like, but I, 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 I definitely question the the policy decision. Yeah, like in my parents' town... A tourist, you know, where tourists come, they close everything down early for that reason because, and they have their alfresco down the little main street. They actually like restriped it. Um, they actually repainted it like for alfresco, which I thought was very innovative for a small um, town in Colorado. But they, they actually like, you know, put new bike lanes in and put new one-way car traffic in and then did all the, you know, picnic tables and stuff in the street. But I thought it was really smart of, that they really like demarcated the space with paint, just knowing it was going to be this way all summer. But the thing I thought was really important is that they close everything down. Like last call is at like nine o'clock or something like that. And then you just have to go home. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe one part that's missing, especially if we ever do start to reopen things here. And not that I want there to be curfews in the city of LA, (laughs) like we had during the protest, but um, that, you really at at a certain point, you're probably not eating and you might make bad choices because of what you're doing. And it might make you more likely to put yourself or someone else in danger. And Am you can I take right a beer that? with you. Yeah. That you has can a just little take it home and cover home. on the top <laughs> that you can put a straw in that fits sure. right in your cup holder. Well, you could put like a hole in your mask and then you could put yeah. a little, they could sell a little whole mask. I don't I don't have a problem with that. I'm I'm hoping that those kind of uh, relaxations on the law outlast the pandemic. I'm not sure that they will, but I But it seems like we could it, you would I guess like I never want anything to go back indoors again. I guess that's my real complaint here is like if we Never? I mean, <laughs> you're both in luck. You're well, both yes. Uh, I have good news for both of you. The pandemic is never ending. And so you <laughs> don't have to worry about what comes. Yeah. Neither of you have to worry about anything outlasting the pandemic. I think my goal. Well, then um, Matthew Kang and Eater had this great story this week about like what's happening in Koreatown where yes. they're really reclaiming the um, the parking lots, you know, not as much the sidewalks and the um, and street space, which is not really happening, but they're really taking over the sidewalks and doing a really great job spacing. I feel like I'd, I'd feel safe going to eat one of eating one of those places. But again, like, you know, what, what do we want to happen next? And like, it's going to get cooler or not that we, not that we ever stop eating outdoors or, you know, anything like that, but how do we just keep expanding on this, make it safer and safer um, make sure that people can take drinks to go and take food to go and create like even like public dining areas, not that you're paying to sit down in a, on a stool in a parking lot, but that you can start to just grab your food and go sit somewhere and create these like temporary parks or these parklets that we can make sure that anyone is welcome to hang out at and make sure that we can, you know, just, it doesn't, it, it, 
I'm not saying that we need to create more rules. I think what you're saying is right. Like we need to keep these lack of restrictions in place and just make it comfortable that for people to move around the city as we, you know, head into well, months. I, I, I would love that. That sounds fantastic. I, I feel like the the city in particular, but but a lot of gen, uh, more generally speaking, a lot of governments have been very slow to adapt to this. It's very what the 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 Matthew Kang article in Eater is incredible. I I'm very very few things that I've read have made me like really miss the experience of going out and eating as much as you know seeing people doing Korean barbecue and uh, in those parking lots in, in K-Town. We've been very slow though to adapt to things. We haven't even really reopened parks, like real parks in, mm-hmm. in the city of LA. A lot of them remain closed. Um, there's been sort of an inconsistency and I would say a lack of initiative shown by various governments where you know we're just now starting about uh, starting contact tracing sort of in a, a haphazard way. Hopefully it will be effective. Um, but, you know, we're, we're more than five months into this at this point, and it just seems kind of like it's proceeding very slowly. One thing I did see that really warmed my heart the, getting back here was all the barber shops and hair salons outside now. Mm-hmm. Have you seen these? So I know we make a lot of alfresco jokes, but it it was really sweet to see people setting up and doing haircuts on the sidewalk. It somehow felt very normal and like that's how it should always be. And um, so it's good to see some businesses at least um, are finally allowed to to do that and to um, at least, get, you know, I don't know how many people's hair you can cut outside under a little tent, but it, it seemed like people were taking advantage of it and it was good to see. So all any positive data, like the hospitalizations or whatever that we're seeing right now, we have to take with a little bit of a grain of salt, given the events of the past week. Uh, so about a week and a half ago, a little more than that, uh, Gavin Newsom did a press conference, really excited, and announced, ladies and gentlemen, mission accomplished. We have turned the corner on the coronavirus. Yeah. There has been, some might say, a truly suspicious decline <laughs> in the number of daily cases over the last two days. But uh, we are confident that this is real. This is not a mistake. Uh, and uh, we are we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, which is something that we've heard every uh, like week or so for the past six months. Yep. Then they come out. Actually, I think the next day, <laughs> uh, the uh, Mark Gailey, uh, the head of the uh, the secretary of HHS or whatever, uh, came out and said, actually, there was a massive data error. We didn't count about 300,000 tests that turned out. Uh, and by the way, the head of the State Department of Public Health has uh, is no longer in her position. Please don't ask any more <laughs> questions about that. On Sunday night, uh, the, the yes. head of, of Department of Public Health resigned. That's that's when you know it's really serious. And just in case like anyone would, thought it was voluntary, they asked Gavin Newsom whether it was voluntary. And he said, we don't like to talk about personnel matters, which means that she <laughs> was, fired. was fired. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the, Scott, you pointed this out, that Garcetti immediately took the opportunity, as they always do. They do it with the homeless numbers when they're really bad. Yeah. They do it with the case numbers. They're like, yeah, I've been thinking there's something screwy with this, <laughs> this system. <laughs> it shows that we have like hundreds of thousands of 
cases here. Maybe check the check the data. Uh, it also appears that the part of the reason that they didn't get these test results in is that somebody forgot to renew the SSL That's certificate right. for like the state website. Like, ju- like, of course, for the dumbest reason so, like, possible. You, you couldn't access if you were uh, uh, somebody who operated a testing site or you were a company that processed test results. You actually couldn't access the state website in order to give them the results because they hadn't paid their annual <laughs> subscription to whatever yes. domain hosting service they have. But then it raises the question, like how long it took, how it took so long to find out that they were just looking at the results. Okay. And they're like, all right, seems normal. No results whatsoever from this (laughs) site. (laughs) It does seem reporting this and throwing a press conference to celebrate (laughs) our, our low case numbers. This is, this is our first Gavin Newsom revenge firing that we've seen. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a milestone. Yep. Uh, also, a lot of back and forth over uh, church services indoors. Uh, Scott, do you want to talk about yeah. the, the big church in Sun Valley? This is this is a weird story, um, one that has been slowly unfolding over the course of the past couple of weeks. Uh, there is a church, a mega church, uh, called Grace Community Church in Sun Valley. Uh, it's it's right near the the corner of Roscoe and Coldwater Canyon. It's huge. It has a it has a, a, a congregation of anywhere between six thousand and eight thousand congregants, uh, and they have been holding indoor church services, which is currently, according to uh, the the health orders issued by the state and by uh, city and county health officials, not allowed. So they they've been flying in the face of the emergency orders from. Uh, County Board of Supervisors Eric Garcetti and Gavin Newsom. Then in the last week, the the new news here was that the the pastor, John MacArthur, who is uh, a big name in the evangelical world, he is frequently on Fox News, uh, sort of decrying the uh, uh, pernicious influence of like social justice movements on um, on Christianity as a whole and evangelicalism more uh, narrowly. He filed a complaint in Superior Court against state, county, and city saying that they were being unconstitutionally discriminatory against church services. Uh, the argument being that because these health orders, because, uh, so for example, when Eric Garcetti says... Uh, that protests can continue and says that uh, various other like uh, marijuana dispensaries can reopen and other things are allowed to proceed, but maintains the, the blanket ban on indoor church services that it is violating the First Amendment. That was upheld by a, uh, a judge on Friday, said that the distinction was it was on the burden was on the government to make a distinction if one existed. Now, for for their part, they've been saying basically, ch- church services are one of the most dangerous settings that you can mm-hmm. have because there's singing, because uh, you have a, a ton of people coming together in a, a an indoor space that is 
not necessarily well ventilated. Um, mm-hmm. You are staying there for several hours. Potentially, uh, that is a, a danger that needs to be regulated. So, And there it, might be one or two people in the service who fall into a vulnerable age bracket, yeah, including John MacArthur himself, who was... 81 years old. Yeah, who has been the pastor at this church for 50 years at this point, yep. yes. Um, yes, the, the, that that is a, a danger that the the government has attempted to make clear. So the, the Superior Court gave a ruling that was in favor of the church that was hailed by uh, Grace Community Church, presumably by other churches as well. Uh, however, the next day, the, the State Court of Appeals said, that they were staying that ruling because it was sufficiently dangerous that they needed time to be able to go through all of the relevant facts of the case and couldn't allow uh, church services to happen in the meantime. So as of right now, indoor church services remain against the law on uh, at various levels. They're, they're not allowed to proceed. Grace Community Church has said that they're going to continue. They, they basically, they got the answer that they wanted from the first guy. So they're just going to continue to hold church mm-hmm. services against the law. Um, but as of right now, uh, and until September 4th, which is when the, the next ruling might come down, uh, they are not supposed to do that. And just another heartwarming alfresco comment. The church on our block does their services in the parking lot, including music. And it's amazing. Sure. Totally changed. (laughs) You really just get to hear everything. And it is the just like echoing like last night they had a service and it was really just like kind of one of the best things that I've seen. And then they also do the food outside. On the sidewalk too. So gotta say, like, I'm a huge fan of outdoor churches. <laughs> uh, John MacArthur, I was reading his Wikipedia page and apparently he believes that sort of an unconventional belief that when if you commit suicide, you you still do go to heaven, which mm-hmm. might explain what he's doing right now. <laughs> uh, let's follow up on a couple of stories related to law enforcement. Um Sheriff Alex Villanueva gave a press conference this week about the shooting of Andres Gardado, the uh, guard of an uh, auto body shop who's 18 years old, who was shot and killed by a sheriff's deputy, Miguel Vega. Uh, Basically, uh, just a, a few more clarifying details on evidence in the case. They are starting to use the fact that there was... Was it a shooting? There was another crime of some yeah, kind. There, there was a shooting at the auto body shop um, about, I think it was 10 or 11 days before Andres Guardado was killed. and it was, Which resulted in the security camera for the, bo- for the body shop being taken by the sheriff's department. Uh, so that, there were, that's why there were no active security uh, cameras at the time of Andres Gardado's shooting. Um, and you can see kind of the situation developing where they'll just say like, well, there's no way to know exactly what happened in the same way as like, there was, again, I keep bringing this up, but there was a sheriff's deputy shooting of uh, probably a person who's homeless by the train tracks in city of industry. 
where they said that um, yeah. somebody charged them with a knife. But we've seen no follow-up on that story and just no evidence one way or the other because, I mean, the, the only reason we keep hearing about Andres Gardado's story is because he has a family and people in his neighborhood who are speaking up on his behalf. But we don't even know this other person's name. And that's what happens a lot. It just goes away and nobody ever asks the questions. Yeah, this was uh, honestly this press conference, uh, like you're saying, Hayes, they are laying out pretty clearly what they're going to proceed with as as they being the, the sheriff's department. They are pretty clearly establishing what they want the narrative to be and, uh, to the great shame of local media, a number of, of news outlets did pretty uncritically pass it forward. That narrative is, uh, the this particular auto body shop has been the site of a number of i think they said something like 20 calls over the past 5 or 6 years mm-hmm. so dating back to when andres guardado was 12 uh mm-hmm. and um and so ipso facto somehow he was involved in uh in his own murder in in some way that that uh points the culpability at him. They talked a lot about the fact that this auto body, they, they showed actual uh, video from the cameras that, uh, the, I don't know if they actually removed the camera or if they just removed the memory from the DVR. I, I think it maybe was yeah. just that. Uh, but they showed video from the cameras that uh, depicted people waiting in line to buy canisters of NOS, nit- nitrous oxide, uh, which the representative for the sheriff's department said was being used by drivers to get high while they were driving and then they would crash into other people, which is a different use of nitrous oxide than what mm-hmm. I am familiar with. Um, that, that was their, uh, they, they, were, they were asked point blank, you know, what, what is the relevance of bringing up all of these other calls at or near the same location? And they said that they were trying to lay a foundation so that people could understand, you know, like what kind of place this was sort of. So also a reason why you would hire a security guard. Sure. If, if this is a, an area where there has have been uh, like some amount of crime before and you would hire someone to stand outside your uh, shop to guard it. This seems like a pretty, uh, a pretty clearly biased investigation exactly the reason why uh, you would not want the the sheriff's department to be policing themselves and why you would rather have the the office of the inspector general performing this function which it exists for um, but but the sheriff's department has um, been very bullish about their ability to uh, conduct this investigation this was the first time they've come out and and talked about it publicly they said that the previous shooting 10 days before andres guardado died is the reason why they haven't been able to release information either to the public or to uh presumably the inspector general mm-hmm. so um, right. it's it's something that i think the more detail comes out about this now we have the the detail that andres guardado was shot six times and that five of those uh five of the shots that hit him were while he was lying down they didn't really answer questions about how maybe that came to be the case 
Um, Not in this press. They had said earlier, uh, like Miguel Vega claimed that he was lying while he was lying down. He reached backwards for his gun, yep. which the deputy didn't have him throw away. Just had him like rest next to him is the story. Speaking of uncritically reporting information from law enforcement, Bill Malugan. Did have you did you follow this right, Alyssa? Are you going to play the song? Are you going to play the? Do we just yes. every time we mention Bill him. Malugan, town crier of the Tampuccino. Tampuccino. Malugan, uh, this podcast uh, described him as uh, the um, the Charmander to uh, Tucker Carlson's Charizard, and then once again we predicted the future. And later that night, it was on Sunday, no Monday night. Uh, the the story that he reported that we talked about last week, where uh, he exposed ostensibly Councilmember Mike Bonin for having called the police multiple times, even though he claims to want to defund, to reduce the police presence in Los Angeles. Uh, Tucker Carlson picked up that story. Picture of Mike Bonin, said his name, whole deal, uh, and and laid it out exactly the same way Malugan had. That story, as we talked about on our show, has turned out not to be true. Chief Michael Moore has since come out and apologized and said that those were not calls initiated by Mike Bonin did not call the the police to come to his house except once to pick up uh, some evidence, a syringe that a, a a protester had left on his on his doorstep. Uh, but I haven't really seen the like you like we you know that like there hasn't been a lot of like public backtracking on the story. Not I don't at think all. There, I haven't seen Malugan apologize for it, nor did he about the 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 Tampuccino. He's what too busy I remain, taking yeah. iPhone videos of the lake fire. That's yeah. That's he's he like, oh, we got bigger. There's this huge. I can't hear you. There's a fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm still most curious if anyone is looking at who leaked this information is in the first place. As we talked about on the last episode, it is very. I mean, it seems very obvious that it was and someone within the LAPD. Yeah, he said like it was an LAPD a, officer. He said it was a high-ranking LAPD source. And th- and what this source told him was uh after Mike Bonin correctly said that he did not place these calls and that they were officer initiated calls which ended up being confirmed by Michael Moore. I personally I did not expect I expected to just know it was a false story, but never get any type of right. official cor- corroboration of that. We did get official corroboration. Michael Moore, chief of the LAPD, came out and said, these were officer-initiated calls. They were not calls that were placed by Mike Bonin. Uh, after, but after Bonin had originally said that, Bill Malugan posted a screenshot from his notes app on his uh, iPhone saying, uh, with a quote from an anonymous high-ranking LAPD source saying that the LAPD would not generate its own calls in in this manner, that there was categorically no way that that was what happened and therefore Bonin was lying. He passed that forward as though it were uh, correct, as though it Mm -hmm. were news, 
Um, and so here we have a journalist who has made it his business basically to uncritically and uh, without doing any sort of journalistic due diligence, pass forward anonymous police sources. And the result is pretty obvious. They just lie to him. But I mean, you know, we, we talk about Bill Malugan. He should be fired. He's praying that he is so he can make the leap to one American news network or whatever. <laughs> the thing that is so like it could be two different police sources. Who knows? It's probably the same one. But one officer filed the public records request to, to leak this, these, this call data in the first place because they knew the exact details yep. about when the calls had happened. Yep. And that same one or another one told Bill Malugan this information that they obviously knew was a lie. Everyone was saying that it says right in the... It's very clear right from the report that these were not officer-initiated calls. So another officer or the same one doubled down on this lie with privileged information to say, I mean, is this something that you can be as an officer charged with? Like, I mean, is this not presenting like false evidence? I mean, it's not a criminal case, but like this person still has a job. Yep. And And it's basically, it's, it, it is a coordinated attack on an elected official because they're voting and, and more generally just speaking in a way that you disagree with. High-ranking officer. High-ranking officer. Let's talk about the Veep Stakes. Kamala Harris, California senator, picked as Joe Biden's uh, vice presidential nominee. lot of speculation this week about what that means for local L.A. politics, if anything. Uh so, you know, we you can game out a lot of uh, eventualities here, like assuming that uh, Biden and Harris win the election. That opens up a seat in the Senate. Dianne Feinstein, this is, you know, probably at least like her last term, one would assume. I think she's 83 yeah. now or older. Um, So that would open up another one later, not for a few years. Uh. And I also want to talk about the possibility, very strong possibility, that Garcetti, who has put in work, like, I don't know how effective it is, but has, like, dedicated a lot of energy towards supporting the Biden campaign. He is the national co-chair of the campaign. Very strong possibility that he would join the cabinet. So what does that mean? Game this out. Alyssa. Two games. Which game first? We doing... The Senate seat first. Let's do the Senate seat first. Scott, I think, had some interesting game theory on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so who? What do you think happens? Who gets it? Me? Are you asking me? Yes. I thought. I thought Scott. I thought what Scott posted was a rather interesting thought experiment. Are you not? You don't want to. You know. What was your thought experiment? Bring Scott? that up. I don't know what Alyssa's referring to. <laughs> Did were you saying that he? Would appoint someone like Adam Schiff to. Oh, okay, her. yeah, I can. I can, did I can talk about this. I so like my, I like how you were pretending like you did not tweet that. <laughs> the one tweet I saw while I was gone. I uh, <laughs> yeah okay so so what what is the what is the relationship of this seat for for LA politics? I I did post something the other day when when it was announced that Kamala Harris would be uh, the 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 choice for Biden's vice president. Uh, that 
was an update of what I had previously said, which was that Adam Schiff was going to take Dianne Feinstein's place in the Senate. Uh, and I was just like, okay, well, what what happens if he's up, he gets this seat instead, the Harris seat? I, do, I think that people made a pretty convincing case that that will not be the actual choice because I think him him running for and winning the Feinstein seat is a is a much stronger possibility but yes go ahead yeah no, I know I I still think that that makes a lot of sense as long as as long as Trump is fresh in the minds of yeah. of California Democrats I think that uh Schiff who has emerged as an absolute fundraising powerhouse during yeah. the, the Trump administration has uh a a lead a pretty clear lead for an open seat However, when we talk about Kamala Harris's open seat, there are two choices. One is Gavin Newsom can uh, can have a special election. He can decide to hold a special election. Uh, if he does that, I think that would speak highly to his personal character. But uh, the other probably much more enticing option is that he can unilaterally appoint someone to that seat. He becomes a kingmaker or queenmaker within mm -hmm. the the state democratic party. Uh, very similar to the sort of like lifetime appointment that the president gets to make of a Supreme Court justice, except with no confirmation process. So, um, <laughs> so a lot, a lot of power in, in Gavin Newsom's uh, hands. If Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win if they win as a ticket this November. I, so assuming that it won't be Schiff, I do think that that it probably would be somebody from Southern California. We haven't had a, a Southern California senator in a long time. Yeah. Where, how long has it been? I was trying to think about that. Does somebody talk about that? Renee Moya of uh, of Housing as a Human Right posted on, on Twitter that it, it has been since 92, I think. What? Yeah. Oh since, my gosh! So the, long. The the year of the woman when Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein were both originally elected. Um, that it's still the year of the woman. In it, it's the year of the woman again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know though. I I, I think people made really uh, interesting Southern Californian picks that were not actually directly related to the the like city level or county level uh, administration of, of of politics here like Javier Becerra who's currently the attorney general or um, Alex Padilla who a lot of people were talking about as somebody who might potentially run for the mayor of LA uh, but is currently serving as secretary of state so um, I'm not sure I one thing that I'm I'm interested in is that people have said uh, that Karen Bass maybe her entry into the the VP sweepstakes was intended mm -hmm. to position her for exactly this outcome. I don't right. know. Do you guys think Karen Bass is a reasonable or possible choice? Um, I would prefer... I mean, I would love her to get more involved at the local level now that her yeah. um, profile has been so elevated from this. Why, she ran for mayor? Yeah, that's that what I was thinking. That would be cool. Right. So I was, I, immediately I was like, wow, like most people didn't really know who she was um, outside of LA. And um, I, you know, people were really excited about her um, becoming the nominee. Um, so I was... Uh, I was like, okay, if she doesn't, I would love to see her, yeah, run for mayor or something else locally, which would be amazing. 
and a larger percentage of the city population are Scientologists than, than, than now. <laughs> so that could actually play in, in her favor. Do they vote, though? They must. I, I, oh, oh they de- vote. <laughs> I'm a Scientologist, <laughs> and I vote. <laughs> And okay, that would so, and that would set okay. off. I mean, uh, so any you know movement in that in that direction would also. That was something we talked about a little bit when when she was one of the finalists for the the VP slot on the ticket. Was that if Karen Bass were selected, uh, that also opens up a uh, a congressional seat in South LA. We might see movement there. Uh, Marquise Harris Dawson, of course, on city council is. Yeah. Somebody who's closely uh, associated with Karen Bass throughout his career. So is Mark, uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, for that matter. Or Holly Mitchell, where she, even if she were to win super, like win or lose the right. supervisor race, yes. uh, I could see her making that jump. Yeah. For the, um, for the Senate pick, I think it probably is Alex Padilla. Um, could be Becerra too, but I had heard a while ago, mm-hmm. over a year ago, that he was first in line uh, were because he's really popular th- among among yeah. uh, state Democrats in particular. And this is he's an LA politician. He was the city council wonderkind. I think first elected when he was in his mid twenties and became council president pretty quickly. Very similar tra- uh, trajectory at that age to Eric Garcetti, uh, and then made the leap to the state level. Is secretary of state now? I think they like when you prove that you can win a state election sure. uh to to get this seat um and i had also heard everyone i heard a lot of people talking about like oh he'll appoint garcetti he'll appoint garcetti i don't think that's going to happen i heard that garcetti the fact that he waited so long to endorse newsom was not uh something that newsom necessarily liked and that happened because at the time antonio uh, Villaraigosa was running for governor as well and they're both part of the city family so garcetti could you know i'm sure told newsom like i can't really endorse with antonio in the race and newsom was like okay cool good luck with that peace uh and scratched him from the uh the shortlist for senate uh and so i yeah, i think it probably is Padilla. he's still young i don't even think alex Padilla is 50 yet uh <laughs> That's impressive. So, and Becerra is like I think sixty-ish or something, and like I, I don't know. I could just see him like putting someone in there who will represent California for a really long time. I think it will be a Latino person, uh, and not in the way that Garcetti is, like for like you know. Uh, and I, at the city level, so Garcetti goes into the cabinet. Nuri Martinez becomes mayor. Like, so that's one factor uh-huh. uh, because she's council president. Like that's she becomes, <laughs> she becomes like mayor pro tem or something. That's like, yep. Okay. And so <laughs> like, she has not really been discussed as someone who has that ambition necessarily to run she, you know, we talk about Mike Fuhrer's already announced like Rick Caruso who owns the Grove. People talk about Joe Buscaino, Mark Ridley Thomas, Kevin DeLeon, like all those dudes. Has a lot of dudes. Yep. And more. There's more. So many more of them. And so many more dudes. But no one really talks about Nuri Martinez. But if she's mayor pro tem, she could probably run from that position. Uh, And so I think that is a possibility that kind of tosses up 
the mayoral race so in some ways. If so, if he gets appointed, Garcetti gets appointed to the cabinet. Mm-hmm. And also, what cabinet position do you think that he wants? I, I don't know what it is, and I don't particularly think that he will do well at any of them, but I think that he is a lock for one of them. And I would say it's probably more likely to be one that he wants than one that he doesn't want. Because I, I mean, everyone says HUD. HUD transportation. How could you give him HUD? I know. Look, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not the one saying this. I think. I think he's trying to angle for like. Did you see that news this week? That was like he's spearheading this like at home coronavirus test that you can like. Yes. Like yeah. he's working on the national scale. So I feel like he's going to try to make the case that like he actually did do one of the best jobs in the country handling the pandemic. Are you, you going to say health and human services? Wow. <laughs> it's got to be something like that, right? That's Once again, that's that's so, good luck with that. That's right? better to you than HUD? No, or, I'm not saying it's better, but I'm saying like that's the only thing we have left to like claim that he could like do well, that he would try to angle for. A, I mean, I don't how, know. I think, I think he'll how, go for something infrastructure-y, which is why I've, mm-hmm. I've kind of always felt like it would be like transportation. I mean, he does talk about like he got Measure M. That was one of his last really big uh, acts as mayor of L.A. was getting Measure M over the goal line. That's that is uh, getting carved in his mayoral tombstone yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. That's fir- first line of the political. Which he's over. already started. He's a, like he's <laughs> he's the one carving it. He started like a year ago. It says like love. What does it say? The love. <laughs> Show it. <laughs> Live, laugh, love. Live. <laughs> so okay, but wait. So if he gets appointed, I I've yeah. been thinking about this a lot on my vacation. So if he gets appointed. <laughs> He would go right away. Not to go. Oh, he'd try to go. You know, get out of here. I I feel like he would totally be part of like the transition team or whatever. The transition team. And then, because technically, if you are running the campaign, you are already kind of part of the transition team. And then, so January, he's gone. And so, I mean, this is is our reality. Yeah. Yeah. This is our, our reality. So, yeah, what we need to start planning for this. I mean, this is a big. This is that's this why is, I did this. That's why I said I've nothing about where. I said the shift thing. You got to know question, like a couple, yeah. a couple yeah. slots deep oh, who you the, want the to be running thing. for the these seats because right. As but soon I guess as like this the happens, question is, he would not defer it. He would not be one of the. Cabinet members would be like, "Oh, I'll go in a few years, or a you know, I'll no. finish my term." He will. Definitely he might say not he could do, do both that. at once. That's the only he, possibility. He, is that he probably he, would he say can that. be mayor from. But did you see all the that White news House. that was like the VP pick was kind of dependent on who could abandon their city or state at right. this time, right? So, not saying that she's not super qualified or whatever. I mean, she's, it's just a Senator has less responsibility to their constituents as, uh, you know, in this pandemic. So do you not think that the cabinet members will have that same reflective moment where they'll say, you know what, I really can't just like when he said he wouldn't run for president. Like I really can't leave my city at this moment. That's my question. Uh, I think it will be exactly that one reflective moment. (laughs) 
Joe Joe Biden standing at the gate at the airport. Joe Biden opens a door and Eric Garcetti is walking through it at this point. He does clearly does not want anything more to do with being mayor of the city. Arguably has not for a long time. He could be Joe Biden could tell him to be the cultural liaison or whatever mm-hmm. call pen was to Barack Obama <laughs> and and Eric Garcetti would take it, I think, at this point. That's true. It could be like a vague appointment. It doesn't need to be like a cabinet appointment, technically. It could just be like senior advisor to the president, right? And he would still leave. Yes, but that would be pr- that would be pretty shitty for like the one elected official who didn't think that yeah. you were dead in the water when <laughs> yep. everybody else elected. Or I stuck you with him and I got it. Yep. Chief of staff, not out of the question. Not a great position for it, given that what we are learning recently about some of his staff members, maybe not <laughs> a great position for him either. All right, I'll keep thinking about this. What? Let's close with a short interview about this is a story that like really broke me this week. I was watching the city council meeting uh, and there was this motion on the table about the port, the port of L.A., biggest port in the entire country uh, and about how they have been planning this expansion for a long time. And in order to do this expansion, they had agreed to reduce their emissions uh, and that it was revealed that one uh, shipping company, specifically uh, China shipping, the government shipping agency, uh, had not been conforming to these emissions reductions much at all. Uh, and that in response to that, the uh, the harbor commissioners just rewrote the rules to make them be in compliance. And they were asking, is this OK with you, city council members? Uh, and the NRD, this was in response to the NRDC appealing this decision. The NRDC and the California Air Resources Board showed up to this Zoom meeting and were like, hey, this is uh, illegal. This is like not OK. This is not in compliance with. Uh, the California Environmental uh, Quality Act. And there was, the debate was really interesting. Paul Coretz, of all people, city council member for District 5, it's, you know, it, in his career has at least prided himself on being an environmentalist. Right. And saying things like, how can we trust that the, even these new standards that you're putting out will be followed when you didn't follow the first ones? <laughs> and now we're changing them. Now we're changing them again. Why are we setting this in stone also when we have things like all this like clean technology coming online like this will poison people. And like I had just read an article in Vox, Alyssa's parent company by Dr. Vox, David Roberts, who's at Dr. Vox on uh, Twitter, DR <laughs> He's Vox. A doctor. He's a but doctor. it looks like Dr. Vox. About how the amount of pollution in our air is driving unbelievable health costs and like social costs. And just that result of reducing emissions would save the amount of money that it costs just in like in, in healthcare alone. And we know that cancer rates are really high near the port is like a really dangerous place to live because of ozone and all the other horrible things that the port puts in the air. And I watched Paul Kress talk about about this. I've watched Mike Bonnet. Mike Bonnet said the funny thing where he was like, I haven't said this in a while, but I agree with everything that Paul Kress just said. And they go back and forth on this sort of, 
And then the city council voted 12 to 1 to deny the NRDC's appeal. So now the NRDC has to either sue or we just let this go forward, uh, this expansion of the port and this reduction in standards at the most critical moment, of literally days before our worst ozone day in a decade. Right. Yeah. And this was like, this happens to me about like once a week, but this was the story where I was like, this is like, we're done. Like yeah. this is, we're absolutely just cooked. Like we just got to get out of here. Like if this <laughs> is the amount of urgency being put toward this, that we're relaxing rules around yeah. emissions in this moment. Yep. Like this really drove me up the wall. So I called the NRDC and asked if I could speak to one of their lawyers and uh, they uh, connected me to this amazing individual, Melissa Lynn Perella, who is a senior attorney at the NRDC and has been involved in this case, as you will hear, for a very long time. So that's this interview right now. Uh, Melissa, I think what would be helpful is to kind of start from the beginning because I know this this case kind of goes back almost decades now, right? With the, with the, with the port. It does. It, it has a long history. Um, and it's unfortunate because it means that for decades now, um, our clients and communities near the port have been working tremendously hard to clean up that terminal. And the most recent set of events, um, really represent, um, a breach of trust. So I'll take you back in time a bit. Um, from the very beginning. So in the late 90s, um, um, our clients, including the San Pedro Homeowners Associations, there's two of them that we represent, as well as other environmental groups in the area, really saw the port expanding, rapidly expanding. And this expansion was not only changing the look of their neighborhoods, but bringing more traffic and more air pollution. And they were concerned about the impacts of um, these expansion projects on their health and their quality of life. And that uh, those health impacts have been have been measured, right, uh, in higher cancer rates and, and things like that. Right. Higher cancer rates. Um, Southern California has some of the highest rates of childhood asthma. Um, areas near the port um, have higher uh, diesel pollution. I mean, there's a there's a myriad of health impacts um, that that are associated with breathing that dirty air. So, one project in particular that um, communities were concerned about back in the, the late '90s, early 2000s, was the expansion of the China Shipping Terminal, which was the subject of yesterday's city council meeting. And um, I have to kind of fast forward, also be on the phone for about three hours. But sure. We NRDC and um, our community partners, we looked cl more closely at uh, the port's plans to expand the China Shipping Terminal, and felt like believed that that expansion project did not comply with California law. And so we sued under the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA, and we prevailed in the Court of Appeal. In the Court of Appeal, this was about maybe the 2002, 2001, 2002 timeframe, the Court of Appeal um, enjoined further construction and operation of the project until the port complied with CEQA, complied with the law. And that meant um, taking a hard look at the project's environmental and health impacts 
and making sure that uh, the project included all of the mitigation, all of the, the best available technologies possible um, for that project to mitigate its traffic and air pollution impacts. And um, part of complying with the law meant that the port would have to disclose the harm from the project and, and make some mitigation commitments in um, a, a larger environmental document. And the port did this in 2008. They issued a what's called a, a final environmental impact report. It um, outlined what the environmental and health impacts from um, operation and construction of the China shipping terminal would be, and they adopted a number of mitigation measures. This is in 2008. Um, not too long after that environmental document was approved, finalized, certified, supposed to go into effect, um, the port began granting waivers to the China shipping um, company, the shipping company from uh, some of the mitigation requirements, in particular, the requirement that ships plug into power when they're at birth. It's called shoreside power. Sometimes it's called um, AMP, alternative maritime power. And basically what it means is the ship comes into dock and it plugs into power to run its generators, its operation, operations, instead of idling its dirty engines. And it, it, it really is a huge um, um, emission reduction um, um, uh, benefit for local communities. And so the port started granting China shipping these waivers and these waivers lasted for something like five years. At, so this is this is um, behind closed doors. The public didn't know that these waivers are being granted. And the port came out in about 2015. So that's seven years after the environmental document was certified and there was these commitments that all these mitigation measures were going to be implemented, the port came out seven years later and admitted that there were about a dozen different mitigation measures that had never been fully implemented. Wow. So that, that was a misunderstanding on my part, actually. So it's not that China shipping was caught in violation of these regulations. They were just never conforming to them and at the, and every step of the way, they were being granted waivers by the port commission. Yeah, yeah. The, this China shipping was not complying with them, and the port wasn't forcing them to do so. Wow. And was looking the other way and not being honest about it until about 2015, um, when the new executive director uh, came, went out, came public, and said that about a dozen different. Um, measures had not been implemented. And you can imagine um, just the breach of the public's trust. Sure. And just to like clear up exactly what it seems like happened is that uh, these the, the conversations around this were China shipping just said no to conforming to these waivers and the, the our port commission just said, okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I, you know, if you ask the port, they may say, oh, you know, it was hard for China shipping to implement these measures. It cost a lot of money. You know, the economy wasn't so good around 2008, 2009. We needed to be accommodating. Um, since that time, the port has also tried to argue that the mitigation measures that they, measures that they, that they collectively, they, the port and China shipping didn't comply with were infeasible. They've offered, you might've heard some of this during the city council meeting. Yeah. They've offered different arguments about why they aren't technologically feasible, um, 
these uh, these measures can't um, can't can't play out because of the way operations at the terminal are conducted. We disagree with that um, with that analysis, but that is what the port is also maintaining that there these measures aren't feasible. I mean, I think it's it's a difficult argument for the port because back in two thousand eight, the city, the port. They did an analysis of these 12 measures, and they're not supposed to adopt them unless they find that they're feasible to do so. They, they found that they were feasible. They committed to doing them, and now they're pretty much doing a 180. And has, has every other shipping company been in compliance, basically? Well, there are different, you know, I don't know how every single, what the lease looks like for every single terminal at the Port of LA. You know, everyone's lease um, requirements are a bit different. But we have seen, um, um, uh, you know, it depends which measures you're talking about, but we have seen um, ports and, and shipping companies and terminals comply with the types of measures we're talking about. Some of what's in dispute is the level of compliance that we think is feasible and the port says it's not. So, for example, on the shoreside power requirement, we'd like to see all of the ships plugging into power. Um, and the port says, oh, we can't guarantee 100%. We want to scale that back, even though in 2008 we committed to doing 100%. Got it. Um, yeah, it's you know it's it's there's 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 a lot of measures and they cover a lot of different sources. So I'm I am speaking at a high level because you have to get into the nitty gritty of each each individual measures for each individual individual source. And there's multiple measures for ships. There's multiple measures for cargo handling equipment. Measures for trucks. Yeah, um, clean trucks are one of the bigger issues at hand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I mean, but the but the the takeaway is. Um, from our perspective, and I think from the, from the community's perspective, is there were commitments made in 2008. All of these waivers and behind closed deal door deals were made, and all this time, the community is breathing excess air pollution, and all of these excess um, um, all of this excess pollution is already on top of intolerable levels near the port, and um, you know it's just a real it's a real shame. That um, it's a breach of the of the public's trust, and it's a real shame that the community was was forced to shoulder this excess pollution. And, and we're now seeing, um, you know, the consequences of breathing polluted air. I mean, who's who's getting COVID nineteen at higher rates? Who's dying from COVID nineteen at higher rates? It's it's individuals, it's communities that are exposed to to higher and disproportionate air pollution levels. And so, not just. All this time in the past, we're now effectively being told that these higher pollution levels will continue, right? Yeah. So, so the measures. So, the port has, and this document was what was at issue at the city council meeting. So, after the port came out in 2015, saying that yes, we we admit that these dozen or so measures were not implemented. What we're going to do is we're going to do a new environmental review document. And in that document, we're going to revise, we're going to adopt a set of revised measures. And um, so the port has committed to adopting a set of revised measures. But in the end, if you were to look at uh, the air pollution reductions you would have gotten from the measures they committed to in 2008, and collectively the air pollution measures that they're committing to now, we're worse off. And we don't seem to have much reason to believe that 
that these new measures will be enforced any better than the last ones were. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, a part of it, it's almost funny if it weren't so real. You know, if you look at the at the environmental review document, there's a whole section called uh, uh, enforcement and monitoring. And that the, what is written in that section is exactly the same as the section in 2008. <laughs> so it's hard to, you know, believe that what the port is committing to now is going to be enforced and monitored to the, de- the degree necessary. Um, so it's, it's, it's very unfortunate. If you were to sort of just, uh, to speculate about uh, some of the motivations behind this decision making, uh, I understand that the port is concerned about losing business from China shipping primarily to the the port of Long Beach. Would you say that's kind of what's driving this? Well, I mean, I can't speak to all the port's motivations, but I do know um, from the work that I've done with the port over the years, some of, some of it has been in partnership and collaboratively, and others have been um, situations like this where um, where we are at opposite sides of things. But I, you know, there is there is a familiar story, which is when we are pushing the ports to help clean the air to mitigate their mission their emissions. There is always um, pushback along the lines of this is going to cost too much. We're going to lose jobs. There's going to be diversion. I mean, it's a it's a very familiar a very familiar um, line from the port. Um, and if you look at some of their materials that. They've they've made a similar argument here. What we've seen is the port has actually um, um, done quite well. Uh, you know, recent events setting aside, given everyone is hurting economically now. Over the last you know ten or twenty years, the port has done extremely well in both growing the port and and adopting some of the most innovative measures available. You know, air pollution levels at the port are still way too high. They still get a failing grade when it comes to to air quality. But um, I think some of their own actions show that they're able to adopt aggressive environmental policies and still maintain jobs at the same time. Talking about uh, the pollution potential of the port, uh, I think I've read LA Times reporting that suggests that uh, the, the, these uh, cargo ships could be the biggest polluters in Southern California by 2023. Is that is that your assessment? You know, I'm not familiar with that article, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, these are large mega ships carrying. Um, you know, we have we have in the United States an insatiable appetite for consume, cheap consumer goods, and um, and all of those goods are coming on these ships. And it's not just the ships. I mean, I want to underscore that too. It's not just the ships, but every time you know a pair of tennis shoes is taken off of a ship, it goes on to a piece of um, equipment. And then it goes on to a truck and then it goes on to a train and then it's taken out to a warehouse. And all along the freight transportation system, there is pollution being emitted. And all along the freight transportation system, there are communities, there are residents, there are families, there are, there are homes. And in more instances than not, those communities are black and brown communities. Um, and that is really who is shouldering um, the costs of 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 our our goods movement system. So I think I think when we're talking about costs too, we need to think about 
costs holistically. Yeah, the costs of cleaning up, the costs of adopting newer, cleaner technologies. Yes, those are going to be born on industry. They'll probably, quite honestly, the costs eventually trickle down to you and I, the consumer. But in addition to those costs, there are costs that are being born on families every day, healthcare costs um, um, from all of those health impacts we talked about earlier. To say nothing of climate change and the costs uh, associated with, with that. Um, one uh, question. So had so yesterday, the city council voted 12 to 1 to deny the NRDC's appeal of the, of, of the port's new environmental review. What would have happened if the council had voted to uphold it? If they had favored with the appellants, I presume what would have happened um, is that the environmental review document would have been kicked back to the port maybe with some instructions from the city council on more mitigation they wanted adopted or more analysis they wanted to see. So I think it, the, the document we would have gone back to the port with some, some level of redo. And so, but because that didn't happen, what are the next steps? Yeah. So, you know, litigation is an option. Um, the appeal was just, um, our appeal was just denied yesterday. So NRDC and its partners, we need to regroup. But litigation has always been an option. The courts were favorable to us in 2002. Um, and it's something that we'll, we'll definitely be thinking about and we have been thinking about. So it sounds like we're, we're turning back the clock. We're partying like it's 1999 uh, with this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's um, I don't know if you heard the testimony yesterday from Kathleen Woodfield. She is one of our clients and she mentioned that um, she appeared, I, I might be getting it a little wrong, but she appeared before the Board of Harbor Commissioners at the Port of LA raising concerns about the China shipping project when her son was in a stroller and now he's in college. Mm. And so it's been decades of advocacy from some of these residents. Um, and so, like I said, it, it is unfortunate on, on many different levels. Melissa, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, good luck with everything. And I will, I will tune into your podcast. There it is. Something nice and bleak to end <laughs> the show on. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back next week on LA Podcast. Bye. Bye.